This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Today, we have with us an incredible guest. I'm pretty sure every single person is going to want to tune in to this one. Like me, he was born in Brooklyn. His mom, Dorothy, was his biggest inspiration. Although rumor has it that she loved Bernie just a little bit more than him. In 1984, he started his career at the NYPD. In 2006, he was elected to the New York State Senate, where he served four terms. In 2013, he was Brooklyn Borough President, where he stayed for eight years. Anyone guess who this is yet? In 2021, he was elected our mayor of New York City. Welcome, Eric Adams, to the Miller Report. Thank you so much, Suzanne, and I'm glad to be here, and I look forward to some exciting conversation. You know, it's funny, Mr. Mayor. First of all, thank you. We've, I know you've been, you're a busy guy, and we've gone back and forth a few times, and I have about you coming here. So I have some cupcake questions, which just be like nice, and then I got some tough ones. Are you ready for the tough ones? Well, listen, they're all cupcake questions. When you are in honesty, just answer, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, Mayor, you have the most difficult job right now. I think that you have such a lo- big job on your hands. Governing New York has to be one of the most difficult jobs in the world right now, other than our President Biden and maybe Netanyahu. You have every ethnic, political and diversity issue to deal with. How do you possibly satisfy all of these people, and how do you do it? (laughs) And you're right. I always uh, jokingly say we have 8.3 million people, 35 million opinions. (laughs) You know that? How true. And New Yorkers love to tell you how they feel and what's on their mind. They're extremely opinionated. But the joy is, as you stated, uh, we were born in Brooklyn. And when you bring that Brooklyn attitude and that grind with you, you don't take things personal and you know, you know how to shoot it right back, you know? So, oh, we do. Right. So, you know, oftentimes uh, people see my non-traditional method is because I'm authentically New York. I, I, I was raised here. I know what you do with people who take your seat on the train before you're about to sit down or people who uh, want to overcharge you or think they're going to disrespect you. That's who we are. When you can tell a New Yorker by his or her authentic approach to life. Best city in the world. It is. Listen, you know, you you think about it. uh, I say over and over again uh, that this is the only country where dream is attached to his name. And uh, New York is the American dream. Mr. Mayor, nobody knows more about the New York Police Department than you do. I don't think anybody. <laughs> is this something that we could all agree on? Is, is getting a better police officer, a better, more police officers? And is this something that we could all agree on? Or is this just another political nightmare? No, we need we need um, uh, more police officers. We are dangerously close to uh, one of the lowest numbers that we've had in many years. Uh, but, you know, it's a real challenge with the economic challenges that we're facing uh, through the migrant and asylum seekers, uh, which is the largest economic challenge that we're facing. Our agencies have done an amazing job of going in, finding efficiencies, uh, 3%, 3%, uh, but now to have them go back and find 5%, uh, if, you know, looking at $5 billion in the what's called the November plan, we have to readjust our budget. It's just horrendous, and it's painful. It's going to hurt our services a lot. I want to get into the migrants in a minute, but let's just finish on the police officers for a moment. Can you give us any suggestion how to recruit them? Is it housing? What would you suggest as a former police 
officer? Combination. Uh, number one is something I had to do that they were waiting many years to get done. Uh, Patty Lynch, who was the PBA president at the time, we had many conversations, and it was clear that we were not keeping up with the salaries of police officers. We gave them a contract that they deserved, uh, almost a 97% ratification rate from their memberships. They were waiting for so many years to do it. We did it. We became competitive. So you're going to see the results of that uh, by more people joining our department and not being siphoned off to other municipalities. But at the same time, we do look at housing. Uh, many of my top uh, real estate owners, uh, let me tell you, you bring a police officer in your building, you give him a either a discount rent or an incentive like we used to do with the officer officer and teachers next door program, you got you have a better uh, uh, building. Your property value goes up. Your neighborhood uh, increases. When I moved into Bedford-Stuyvesant, we were having a real crime problem on our block. I moved in, organized my neighbors. Everyone on that block, their property value went up. And so there are ways we can really incentivize police officers coming into the, de the department. I hope all my developers are listening to this because I'm a <laughs> proponent of that. I've been saying that to all the developers. Smart idea. So let's move on to a tough one. I said this wasn't going to be cupcake. Mm -hmm. Tough one is migrants. Mm -hmm. Mr. Mayor, we got an issue here. Without a doubt. In the past, you were proponent to put these migrants, 140,000 came to New York City in hotels. Mm -hmm. Do you still think this is a good idea? Yeah, well, we have to put them where we, we can get the space. Uh, you know, who would have thought that over a year later, we're still having a conversation about, you know, how do we stop this heavy flow of migrants and asylum seekers into our city? And we should not allow anyone to tell us because we're asking the federal government to do its job that we're anti-immigration. Because that's not true. Uh, this city has always embraced immigration. Uh, we're one of the most diverse cities on the globe. All of us have roots that go to some level of immigration. The number one question is, should local municipalities, should they be responsible for a national problem? And I say no to that. And when we stated last year that we need to have a decompression strategy at the board border, 108,000 cities, states, and municipalities, villages throughout this entire country, everyone should be dealing with this issue, not just New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Houston, and now Massachusetts is also joining our coalition. And then we need to fund this. This should not come out of taxpayers' pockets. How much and is it costing the taxpayers? $5 billion this fiscal year, and then in January, we have to come up with another $7 billion. So we're talking about 12 billion dollars. And people often look at our budget and say, well, you got a, you have a $106 billion budget. That's not true. $76 billion of that is accounted for. You know, it's to keep the lights on, pick about trash, etc. You only have $30 billion that you can sort of move around. And out of that $30 billion, $12 billion is coming out of it. It's going to hurt. It's what going kind to hurt of services are you going to cut? You're, you're talking about everything from trash pickup, uh, cleaning our highways, uh, school safety agents in school. Uh, how many new police classes we can put we can put in uh, after school programs? You think of the service, and that service is going to be impacted in way one way or another, and it's it's really going to have a major impact on our city. And it keeps me up at night because this is a real issue that we fought for. The city has been trending in the right direction. Double digit decrease in crime. 4.7 million jobs, the highest number of jobs in our city history, double A bond rating, subway uh, crime has gone down, 
homicides have gone down, shootings have gone down, uh, major companies are coming to this city. We were humming, and we want to continue to hum and move in the right direction. I saw in the New York Post on Saturday that one of the reasons for this federal investigation on your fundraising was because you stood up for border control. Do you think there's any merit to that? Well, listen, I cannot speculate on uh, why, you know, as what was reported, you know what I know. Uh, there was uh, a report that I helped uh, the Turkish consulate uh, move forward to open uh, their consulate. Uh, this is what I do every day. It's your job. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, if you only know how many people reach out to me uh, through texts, through calls, you know, just about everybody in the city has my, my cell phone number. And my job as a bar president, state senator, and mayor is to feel calls from constituents and contact city agencies and help them navigate those city agencies. I can't compel them because I didn't have any power to compel as the borough president. But I reach out and say, can you inquire? Can anything be done to assist a particular constituent? This is what every elected official uh, does. And so uh, I don't know, you know more than I do. I'm going to participate as much as possible. Whatever information that is needed, I will turn over. But I, gotta, I have to continue running the city. And I'm focused on continuing running the city from driving down crime, dealing with this migrant asylum seeker issue, and balancing our budget and attract new industries uh, to our city. Today we have with us a remarkable guest. He was born in the United States. He attended NYU and Berkeley. His grandfather, Joseph Durst, was a tailor in Hungary before coming to the United States. And like so many immigrants, became wildly successful in the real estate business. In 1915, Joseph founded the Durst Organization. The Durst Organization currently owns 13 million square feet of commercial space and 3,500 residential units. Welcome, Douglas Durst, chairman of the Durst Organization to the Miller Report. Thank you, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. Are you building anywhere outside of New York right now? We invested heavily in Philadelphia prior to the pandemic. Unfortunately, the Philadelphia did not recover as well as New York did. And uh, we've had to put those, those projects on hold. Real estate is local. We've learned that over the years. And uh, we know New York. And we're convinced that New York is coming back. It has every time there's been an issue. And it's going to come back again. That's music to my ears. Let's talk about residential. So you have 3,500 residential units. Everybody says that we need more housing. We more, need more housing. Do you think we need more housing? And where would you put more housing? There, there is no question we need more housing. Wherever room can be found to build it, there are lots of places that it should be built. Uh, in in uh, a lot of the boroughs, uh, there's plenty of space to build, but it's been stopped for a, mostly by the city council. Uh, and uh, we, But also to build... We need a new 421A, which uh, expired several years ago, and construction of new housing has almost completely stopped. That was my next question. Would you build without a 421A? Uh, the only place you can build without 421A is Manhattan, and then you're going to be building condos. So you're not going to get rental housing without 421A. Well, what do you think we have to do to get a new 421A? 
Everybody's talking about that. Everybody says it. Everybody agrees we need it. We need uh, cooperation with the state legislators uh, and the unions who uh, we believe will, will realize that if they want construction work, there has to be a 421A. Today we have with us the most special guest, so much that it's actually making me a little nervous. He is a friend, a real estate conglomerate, oil, baseball, food, supermarkets, media, and now an author, John Katsimatidis. Well, you're such an inspiration, John. Really, I have to tell you, tell me about Florida. You're building the tallest tower in St. Petersburg. Why? What's that? Tell it's us time about. to move. I love New York. I want New York to survive. I will work my tail off to make sure New York survives. But the, the joke I say, do I spend the next billion in New York or do I spend the next billion in Florida? And it's time. You know, I had big investments in Florida with Pantry Pride with 35 or 37 shopping centers. And we sold it all in 1992, 93, 30 years ago. But it's time to go back to Florida. Uh, Florida. People are moving to Florida. They're moving to, to Texas. They're moving to uh, Tennessee, where I lived for a year and a half. They're moving North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, even pe 484,000 people have moved from New York down to, well, not necessarily Florida, moved out of New York in the last 24 months. High income earners. High income earners. So, you know, like Tom DiNapoli was on my show, uh, the controller of the state of New York. He's okay with the budget this year, but he says, I don't know who's going to pay uh, the uh, the budget uh, year two, three, and four because people are moving out. So, John, how, do and, we, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to fix it? Well, I, I pray that uh, Governor Hochul puts her foot down and... Um, uh, and I pray for her, and she's a tough Irish gal. And uh, the the socialists that uh, are not really socialists, but they're playing the game. Um, common sense Democrats don't have the, the, the should I say testicles? Don't have the testicles to stand up against the socialists, and they got to stand up and say enough is enough. We want America the way we grew up. And not the way you want to change it. Beware. Look what happened to Venezuela, the wealthiest country in South America. In 20 years, it went from the wealthiest country in South America to a vast wasteland. And who did it? The socialists. Uh, criminals. The Castro-type socialists that went from, from Cuba to Venezuela. The criminals. They stole all the money. Do so you see that and happening The definition here? of socialists, they steal the money for themselves and they, and they make believe we're for the people. Look what happened in Washington. They, the price of oil ever since President Biden went, uh, went to uh, office went from 55 to 120. So what happened? The price of gasoline, the price of uh, food went way up. And who got hurt? It was the poor people. It was the middle class. It wasn't the rich that got hurt. We don't give a damn. It was the poor and the middle class that Joe Biden uh, promised to help. And he was hurting them the most because of, a, of, a, of prices going up and the rate they were going up. So you're really down on New York right now. Is there anything we I'm can do? I'm not down in New York. I wanna, I'm here. I'm standing firm. I want to help New York. 
So we got to keep. But I'm people. not spending another billion so far. So we got to keep people. I hope everybody's listening. I hope if we all leave, listening. if we all leave, don't forget. There's another thing. If the consumers are all leaving, the millionaires are all leaving, the middle high middle class is leaving, and now I understand there's some some attorney generals that want to go against businesses. So then we have the businesses leaving. You know, on I'll give you an example. Businesses say, "Oh, you're charging too much for gasoline." Well. If the price of gasoline, crude oil is a hundred dollars a barrel, you know, President Biden says you should charge the same. I mean, you have to be really dumb to say that. If if it's costing a hundred dollars a barrel, my employees will be out of a job if I charge the same and went out of business within a month or two. Exactly. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, you know, you should. You know, price of eggs goes up. What do you mean? You should charge the same for eggs. Well, blame it on the farmers. Some of these attorney generals are saying, uh, you know, oh, my God, you you shouldn't raise the price of eggs. What do you mean? uh, 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 Hundreds of millions of chickens died because of the flu, and they went up. You want me to charge the same price of eggs? I'll go broke. Today we have with us a real icon. I mean, a true icon. A French chef, a author, a TV personality, a co-owner of, everybody knows, Le Bernardin. It really is, always been, still is the finest restaurant in New York City. Recently, he opened up a wine bar called Aldo's, as well as L'Ami Pierre, about five months ago. It's Eric Repair. So you're quite famous, and you've done so many great things for New York City, particularly in the culinary world. But the restaurant business, along with other real estate, has had a very tough time since COVID. And I'm really, I'm interested to know, like, what do you think the relationship now is between the landlords and the restaurant owners? Have there been a lot of concessions? Do you think that's going on? How did you fare during that? Um, Our landlords were amazing during the covid they help us tremendously. Wow. And uh, without their help, we wouldn't be here today. Uh, the landlord really, really supported us. Kudos. Incredibly. I think uh, a lot of our, our friends who have restaurants have been also helped by their landlord as well at that time. And some of them didn't have any help and they closed. Hmm. <laughs> because you cannot rent, you cannot have a rent for one year and be closed and no revenues. You, landlords have to make an effort and uh, and therefore uh, we are grateful to them. Do you think that they helped you particularly because of your reputation? They helped us because we have a good relationship yes. with them and because we have been very good tenants and uh, they help us with the wine bar that we have, although some wine bar that is uh, 20 yards from Le Bernardin, uh, they help us with everything we, we had with them. So it's it was something... Um, to remember, I'll say. So, well, I think it's a lot because of you, but um, <laughs> oh, do you no. remember the days when we would sit with our coats on and the sidewalk and freeze and, and order food because we were afraid to get COVID? I hear that's going away. And I'm just wondering how that's going to affect revenue. So Le Bernardin was closed completely when when um, the COVID was in the city. And uh, we, did, we didn't want to have a terrace because it's not Le Bernardin experience. We didn't want to put a piece of fish in a, in a plastic <laughs> box <laughs> because, it's, again, it's not Le Bernardin experience. Even the wine bar was closed. Then we reopened. And when we reopened, we had a lot of restrictions. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but it was 25% capacity and so on. That was very hard for restaurateurs in New York, almost unbearable. Then we went to 50% capacity. Then 
and we were almost fine and then we closed again and it was like really like a roller coaster and Midtown was dead yes as you know as, I, as know. I know you could walk for hours in Midtown and Times Square and do all the blocks and see no one not even a car not even the police wow. and today it's back and and that is amazing to see oh, so I much life in uh, in in the Midtown district, uh, in Rockefeller Center, everywhere. It's it's so packed with tourists and New Yorkers that came back to their offices and are working. Well, maybe that's because they want to come to Le Bernardin. They, uh, they probably want to come to Le Bernardin because we are packed lunch and dinner. And uh, last year, we had the best year of Le Bernardin for, uh, forever. We, we never... At a better year than, than this 2022. This music to my ears, Eric. This is fantastic. You're saying that to the restaurant is doing well. <laughs> Congratulations. But with the rent so high and vacancy so low, I think New York was voted the most expensive city to live in in the whole nation last year. So how are you finding a workforce? How are you finding people and giving them homes? So after the, the COVID crisis, it was difficult to find some employees. Uh, a lot of them went back to their state because we have a young team, you know, fine, we have a fine dining restaurant and a lot of the team that comes to the kitchen is there to learn the craft and, and the craftsmanship and, uh, and how to cook. And, uh, those young people went back to their state. They went back to their families and, and didn't return to New York. But today I have to say we have a full team. We have about 175 employees. We are 75 cooks in a kitchen. Wow. Where are they living? A lot of them live uh, in the in the boroughs uh, outside Manhattan. Right. And uh, a lot of them are in Brooklyn and Astoria. And Roommates. The, the subway is very important because they have short trips, half hour, and they are, they are where they live. Yes, roommates, of course. This is what I want you to be frank to the yeah. audience about. How is crime affecting your business and what do you see? In New York, obviously. Yes. I see nothing. Uh, and Suzanne, I walk every morning. I live on the Upper East Side. I walk every morning through Central Park mm -hmm. for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I walk every night through the streets back home from Le Bernardin to the Upper East Side. I do not see anything. Of course, I see few homeless here and there uh, at night sleeping during do the day. Do you take the subway? I do not take the subway because I walk. But I do not see anything in our neighborhood. Our building has private security taking care of the building. Mm -hmm. So that may be helpful. I don't know. But it's no crime in our uh, street. It's no crime uh, in a, around the building. And uh, again, I walk with no fear at all whatsoever. So the papers today, the front page of the Post was basically saying that our president has failed us and crime is so high. And so you're not seeing any of that. You think it's just media? I haven't, I haven't seen the first page of the post today. Uh, maybe they should talk about Fox News and, uh, and what happens to them instead of uh, lying about the situation in New York. In our mission to learn about what's happening in the world architecturally, today we have with us a very special guest. He is the managing partner and principal of Gensler. Welcome Joe Brincato to the Miller Report. So I'm going to jump right into what everybody's really talking about, and we're going to get into more of a de the detail later, but the big issue is the empty office space and what's going to happen in every market because of all the vacancy. So I want to ask you, as a design firm, first of all, when you go back and you look at the numbers, many of the people, even in the 80s, I don't think we were at 100% occupancy. So what do, now we're at what? Where are we now? Oh, it's interesting because it varies from city to city, but 
maybe above 50%, 55%. There was more people in the office pre-pandemic, but not that much more. (laughs) Interesting. Right? I mean, just think about it. In the, in our, in, so here in New York, Fridays, you know, especially in the summer, exactly. (laughs) You know, there, it it wasn't as, as busy. You know, people travel for, for their, for their business. Um, You know, there was always flexibility pre pandemic. I mean, if somebody had to go to their child's uh, ball game uh, one afternoon, they, they did it. And they had a doctor's appointment. They did it. They had flexibility before. Uh, So, Look, the numbers are, are, are pushing, seem to push up. There's no question that a hybrid work environment uh, is here to stay. Uh, you know, it's going to, that, that won't, that probably won't change. But I do see more people across the, uh, across the U.S. coming in. It's interesting. I was on a, uh, a panel. I, I moderated a panel um, about, about uh, three, four months ago, a real estate panel, and I was asking uh, some of the real estate heads of a few technology companies. Uh, it seems that your CEOs have changed, cha- you know, have done an about face. They said they never needed their people to come into the office again. Um, you know, in 2020, 2021, they were saying that. And later in 21, they started saying, well, you know, we'd like to get people back. Is that because they have leases? They need to fill the spaces? Uh, I don't know if it was about leases. I think it probably has to do with the long-term good health of an organization. I agree. And being together, yes. you have a culture, you have to build your pipeline. Uh, so I asked them, they started saying, okay, now we're supposed to be in three days a week. I said, okay, how often are people coming in? You know, three days a week is about 60% of the time, right? Um, he said, 15% in the United States, wow. 15%. So I said, why do you think that's happening? And, you know, if the CEO said he'd like to have people back three days a week, he thought about it and he said, um, in the entitlement. Mm. He also, and then another uh, panelist said disrespect, which was really interesting. I stepped back and I said, wow, those are pretty hard words. Um, I asked them, what is it like in your international locations? And uh, he said, no, we're full. We're full. They're back, and uh, they've been back for a while. Matter of fact, I'm starting to lease more space in a few of the markets outside the U.S. I said, that's really interesting. I think that once we give these migrants uh, work permits, we'll see some competition in the market because there'll be more people will be looking for jobs. What's your opinion on that? Uh, I think at Certain levels, most of the migrants are going to, uh, that will get to work, yep. um, probably are not going to be working in uh, white-collar jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not going to be working uh, in, in the professional sector, the healthcare sector. Uh, as, as doctors, they may get jobs and get trained. We have to make sure that we're enabling uh, some training yep. for these people so they can uh, be productive. So what do you think you could do on a design side to make it more attractive so people want to come to work in the workspace? Well, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we Gensler, we have a Gensler Research Institute, and we've been running workplace surveys for many, many years. Um, the latest survey we ran had 14,000 respondents, uh, office workers, and it was interesting. We listed you know, a handful, uh, maybe 10 items of why somebody would want to come back to the office. Tell me. And 
you know, we all know that collaboration is is critical and in-person collaboration is, is very important, especially in the creative industry. We're working in teams and yep. you, know, you kind of bounce off of each other ideas and you, you know, you start building. You want together. to have coffee and you want to meet your friends and go right. for drinks after. Right. That's really uh, important. But the number one reason people said they would want to come back to the office is so they could do their focus work. Right. That's kind of interesting. Maybe you and I could do our focus work at home. Maybe, you know, because we may have, uh, you know, we may be empty nesters or we may, you know, have a big apartment or a big house and we have room to do that. But a lot of people do not. And they want to come back so they could do focus work. So it's really interesting because it will change the work environment. We have to, maybe there will be some more enclosed spaces, not just a lot of open, open plan. There'll certainly be a lot of collaboration spaces, but people's main work area, you know, even if it's in the open plan, there may be more enclosed spaces for them think. to go. Yeah, you remember the right. days that people went to the corner office, they wanted to think, they want, everybody wants that time and they, it's some prestige that comes with that. Did we lose all that? Well, I think that in order to do their job and to enhance their career, um, you know, they want, they, they have to deliver. And, uh, you know, by being able to do their, the type of work that they need to get done at that moment, you know, they may, they may need, more quiet space. So what's happening now is I, we see more people getting back to the office. We have to create a great experience for the employees, not just within the office space, but as they approach the office out on the street, as they enter their building and their lobby, the amenities that may be in some of the buildings uh, are become even more important. Outdoor space, really important. People want that. This week, I think we have somebody that everybody's going to relate to, and that is beauty. Today, I'm so proud to have with us Mally Bernstein from Blue Mercury. Mally is a Harvard grad. She also has 20 years of retail experience. So, Mally, I know that in 1999, you had two stores basically online, and today there are 180 stores. You're doing about $300 million annually, and... It's just like booming. Like, tell us the story. Thank you, Suzanne. It's humbling to be here and humbling to be among the guests you referenced. Blue Mercury has always been a disruptor in beauty. It actually started online before it went in stores, and that was in the 90s. And so it started out disrupting not only by the channel that it came out with, but also in bringing together cutting-edge brands that were hard to find and doing that curation work for the clients. In addition, Blue Mercury was a breakthrough model because it was all so highly serviced and highly personable. And as a result, it was always about the client and the client's needs and then identifying the brands that match those needs. And so what's exciting about being a part of Blue Mercury is that we are constantly looking to evolve with the industry and we are looking to continue to disrupt the industry. And now post-pandemic is another time for that. So you want to disrupt the industry. So like, how do you compare? What gives you the competing edge of, let's say, like Sephora or Ulta? Like, tell us. Yeah, so when we think about Blue Mercury, it's in our name. For example, when we think about the color blue, we think about your beauty as being nuanced and profound, like the depths of the ocean. And when we think of 
mercury. We think of liquid mercury and how your beauty is ever evolving, fluid, ready to transform. And so that's transforming by season. That's transforming by life stage. So Bloom Mercury has always been about identifying your individual beauty needs and making sure that we evolve to meet those needs. And so how we do it differently than everybody else is that we are hyper-focused on providing personalized service with the curation of products and brands that have proven results in a local luxury setting. I have to tell you folks, she's not bullshitting because I used to live on 51st and 1st and every morning I would walk past a Blue Mercury store on 2nd Avenue and I had to stop there every single day. Like literally every day it was like my break, whether I was coming home from work or going to work and I would go in, the girls knew me and they would sit me down. You know, when you're buying makeup, you want to go in and out. They would never let me. I had to go and get a new makeover. The customer service that you have in these stores was really off the charts. How How do you train and how do you find these people? Yeah, you know, because our model is because it is so heavily dependent on the relationships. We really look for candidates who are invested in listening to our clients and learning about our clients and making sure that our candidates are also really passionate about delivering the best service possible and really passionate about beauty, especially if they're curious. Because if they're curious, then not only do they come to us with that passion for beauty, but then they also are so receptive to the education and training that we provide because beauty never stands still beauty is ever changing. And we want to make sure that they're up to date on the latest and greatest trends and the newest brands. And so making sure that there's a passion, but a curiosity for beauty, as well as a passion for a client's service, that's who we look for. And we're plugged into the local networks and the industry to make sure we're finding the best teams for the neighborhoods. So I I hope everybody's listening to this question because it's really important. So Mally, how do you choose your locations? That's a great question. For us, our retail strategy leads our real estate strategy and our retail strategy is to be very much client-led. We are targeting the modern confident who is seeking sophistication, who is seeking thought partnership, who loves to explore what's new in beauty. And as a result, when we think about our consumer who is a luxury shopper through and through, what we look for is where is the concentration of these clients? And then we seek to be in their neighborhood so that we can be a part of their lives. And as a result, that client service model is what leads our real estate strategy because we want to be close to that consumer. We want to be in their neighborhood. We want to be able to offer the service that helps them to address their concerns in life. And we want to make sure that we provide the curation as an additional element of service in their stores. So is there a mathematical equation in doing this? You know, it's always an art and science. We very much have such great relationships with our landlords because together we build out the locations and we commit to each other through the good and the bad and through the long term. And as a result, we found landlords to be incredible partners to not only the success of our locations, but building out our fleet. And in terms of the mathematical model, there will always be the science of it where we want to make sure that once we got the clientele right, right, the right type of uh, shoppers that um, want what we offer, we then, of course, want to make sure that the density of traffic is there. We want to make sure the right co-tenants are there. It gets into the science of picking the right location. So let's just take a real life example of this, because this is such an important question. Because again, on this show, we have many landlords and people are going to be listening to this. Like, what would a company like yours look for? So let's take a real life example. Let's say I have a location on you know, in the Bowery and it's 2,000 square feet and we're looking for a tenant 
in and all these brokers, they're so good at what they do. They're running around and they're trying to find a tenant and they call on you. What what happens then? Take us through it. We'd want to understand whether or not our target consumer is there. And when we say there, we want to make sure that the density of target mm. consumers is there so that the traffic flow into the store will be there. Mm-hmm. We also want to understand who are the other co-tenants in the area. That makes sense because our consumer would be shopping those brands in addition Mm -hmm. to our brands. Further, we also want to make sure that we understand what the landlord's commitments are in terms of building out our location and that community so that we're both going to be successful. So when we look at a location, we want to make sure that it matches what our business strategy is. And we want to make sure that the retailers we're co-located with and the landlords that we're basically marrying to (laughs) are, are going to be in it with us for the long term. So let's just talk about some key locations. Let's say like the boroughs versus, let's say, New York City versus Brooklyn, Queens. How are you seeing those? Yeah, so for us, what we find is that the more that we're in the neighborhoods where our clients are based, the better. Now, is that suburban or urban? For us, suburban is where we do best because we are much more a part of the residents' lives. Now, it's not to say that urban isn't a core part of our strategy. It absolutely is in the right neighborhoods. But for us, we want to make sure the density of clients is there first and foremost. Would you ever take space like the old days where you would just take high rents where you could just get like billboards to advertise for tourists, even though you know the density is not there necessarily, would you take space just for the advertising to attract tourists? You know, we think that uh, there are different ways to spend in marketing your brand, for Mm -hmm. sure. When it comes to real estate, first and foremost, we want to make sure it's the right investment with the right return after solving for the client uh, base that makes sense for us and the density of those clients, which only reinforces our confidence in getting that right return. And so for us, in terms of doing it for marketing purposes, that is not something Mm -hmm. that we would do going forward. We want to make sure that we serve we exist to mm. serve clients first and foremost, as opposed to tourists. Tourists is something that we absolutely welcome and benefit from, but our first priority is to the residents of the neighborhoods. So are you looking to open new stores? We are. We are always on the lookout for that. the right neighborhoods, the right landlords, and the right markets to Could be entering. Could you give us some juicy ideas, like where? You know, the great news about us is that we are in many locations throughout mm-hmm. the country, and in many of them, we want to continue to densify to make sure that we are attracting the most consumers we can that are our target shoppers in that market. And so as a result, when you think about the markets that we're in today, there are markets that we want to continue to grow in. And there are markets that are lookalike markets to what we're in today that we want to consider with the right neighborhoods, the right landlords and the right economic models uh, tomorrow. Well, specifically, are you interested in any more New York locations? So specifically in New York, I mean, The great news about New York and area is that we haven't penetrated the full potential. And so we are absolutely always looking at New York as we are in D.C., as we are in Boston, as we are in other major locations where we're successful today. We're always on the lookout for the right opportunities and always open. Are all my landlords listening to this? So not such a pleasant question, but I also noticed that you closed one of my favorite stores on 51st and 2nd. Why would you close? So for us, we want to make sure that we're also optimizing the fleet. In New York in particular, we've had 
some locations quite close to other locations. And as a result, there was an opportunity to close some of them and consolidate Mm. that client base. And uh, the great news is we have seen that transfer. And so for us, knowing that we want to get into the right neighborhoods, but as I've mentioned, we also want to have the right landlord and economics to make sure that when we are in a neighborhood, we are close enough to densify, but far enough to make sure that we're attracting separate neighborhoods and client bases. So that went seamless? That's right. The That's great, great news is that we did see what we had expected, mm-hmm. which is the transfer of our client base That's to great adjacent locations. Loyal customers. Exactly. And that's the heart of our model is that in driving the best client service, we're hoping to drive the best loyalty. Today we have with us an interesting guest who by some measures is the king, the king of New York real estate because he's always on the streets. He, like myself, was born in Canarsie, Brooklyn, go Brooklyn, and has been socially and politically active in our great city for decades, decades. Welcome Curtis Sliwa to the Miller Report. Just tell us briefly, because some people don't know what the guardian angels are. Explain to the audience what, who are the guardian angels? Guardian angels are citizens who voluntarily go out dressed in red berets, red satin jackets, who are not just eyes and ears for the police, you know, see something, say something. No, we make citizens arrests. We get physical. People are fighting in the streets. We're separating them. If the fight continues, we're slamming and jamming them. If uh, we have to make a citizen's arrest, we don't hesitate. Now, we don't have any weapons. We don't have any special powers or privileges. But every citizen has the right to make a citizen's arrest, except nobody knows how to do it. Lawyers, there are like nine lawyers for every uh, one citizen. They practice their martial art. I sue. They put the fear of God. Uh, so is Hashem it martial arts? Is it, are you doing like karate? What are oh, you yeah, doing? Oh, yeah. No, uh, martial arts has been part of my life uh, since I was a young boy. And obviously, it's part of the training process in the Guardian Angels. Young men, young women, mm-hmm. middle-aged young men, uh, middle-aged men and women. But you're out there with no weapons. And everybody in the streets knows you don't mess with the guardian angels. Like it. We need you now more than ever. And thank you for that. And keep going. So I wish we had time to talk about everything that's going on in the world. And there's just such really trying times right now. What are you seeing? It's Michigash. It's it's total insanity. Mm -hmm. For instance, every day you walk the streets and you see mostly men, some women, going into retail establishments. And what they do, they say to the cashiers, I'm here for my Alvin Bragg swag bag. I won't shoot. I'm just here to loot. Straight up. And they go in like locusts to a cornfield, and they steal everything they can get their up hands Up to $1,000. Doesn't matter. They're not, not going to get arrested. And if they do get arrested, it's petty larceny, and they get turned right back out. It's turnstile. 90,000 packages a day get stolen. That are delivered by either FedEx, USPS, uh, UPS, uh, 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 all the uh, uh, overnight package. Imagine 90,000 and not one of them gets reported to the police. They won't write it up. And the companies who send the packages suck it up as the price of doing business. But imagine if you're a criminal. Mm-hmm. Or you're, you've got a, a drug problem and you steal so you can shoot up. The easiest crime to commit is follow the FedEx truck. Just pick up all the packages, open them up, and it's like Christmas every day for you. And there are no consequences. So naturally, if you're at the lowest level of the crime chain, stealing packages, they call them porch pirates. Well, then you say, I go into a store, Dwayne Reed, CVS, I shoplift there. No consequences. Do you think they just stop there? 
or does it escalate? It keeps escalating. That's why you have to have zero tolerance. That's how Rudy Giuliani got control of the city from David Dinkins at that time where the city was completely out of control. Nothing is acceptable. Everything has consequences. Just urinating in the street, which I see all the time. When Giuliani was mayor, you'd have four squad cars surrounding you. The guy would be embarrassed. They're defecating now, not just urinating. Right, but uh, you know, he, he would be afraid to prove that he wasn't suffering from uh, uh, projectile uh, uh, inabilities. But I'm t- this is what you have to do. You have to swarm them, and they have to pay a price. If there's no price to pay, they're going to commit crime over and over. Look at people. They don't pay the fare. You're paying the fare, right? It's two ninety now for one trip. And you see the Irish sweepstakes, people going under the turnstile, over the turnstile, through the gate. Why should you pay? One third of the passengers on the subways and buses do not pay their fare now. So we'll, we'll, get off. we'll be raised. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2021, yes. you ran against Eric Adams. Yes. Do you plan to run again? Oh, absolutely. Because now Eric Adams has a track record. Back then, remember, everyone declared him the new face of the Democratic Party. He was a moderate. He had been a former cop. He was going to be law and order. He was going to undo all the damage of de Blasio. Right now, as I make the rounds in the five boroughs, they look at me and they say, you know, this guy is nothing but de Blasio 2.0. This city has not progressed. We are, in fact, because of this migrant situation, slipping more and more into the abyss. So other than what's happening organically in the city, what will be different in your approach now than then? You have to be confrontational. This kumbaya, you know, the bar, I call it Barney talk. You love me, I love you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love Hoko, I love Biden, I'm the Biden in Brooklyn. What has it gotten him? They won't even give him a penny to handle what is an invasion of people who are not vetted at all. We don't know who they are. When cops arrest them, the biggest problem a cop has is this person doesn't have ID. We don't know who they are. And they just let them in. Now, that starts with Biden at the border. But then, remember a year ago when Abbott, the governor of Texas, was saying, hey, we're overwhelmed. I'm going to have to send them to you, Eric, because you're a sanctuary city. And Eric said, you better believe we're a sanctuary city. Look at all the things we give are migrants. And he gave a laundry list. Now, if you happen to be in a third world country and you are watching on your cell phone or an iPhone, because they all have cell phones and iPhones, you would say, where do you want to go when you cross the border? New York, because you get everything. Hotels, three squares, health insurance. You're in the front. You're prioritized. The average citizen is not, especially African-Americans who elected Eric Adams mayor. He owes it to them, you know, to the victor go the spoils in politics. So when uh, Rudy Giuliani finally beat Dinkins, it was because of Staten Island. Oh, all of a sudden, Staten Island was on a pedestal. You could look at every mayor, but this mayor had a fiduciary responsibility to help blacks, African-Americans in need. And yet I'm walking the streets every day. The majority of the homeless, the emotionally disturbed, those living in the subways and the parks are African-Americans. What happened to their needs? They're citizens. Some of them are veterans. You mean to tell me some guy who comes across the border who may be a gang member of MS-13 or a sex trafficker or a drug dealer gets prioritized over our own? Everyone is opposed to that. And Eric Adams is going to pay the price for that at the ballot box. 
Well, staying on real estate, because this is really a real estate podcast, I think everybody could agree. Real estate is the most important thing we're all going to invest in in our lifetime. And safe cities make value of real estate, yes or no. It really is the most important thing. So unless we clean up the streets and unless we make this a safe place, we're going to continue to lose tourism. What will you do to create better value so investors will want to come to the city and we stop losing the international people that are here and tourists? Well, you know, there is a booming part of real estate. Do you know what that is, Suzanne? Yes, it's called hotels. No, it's called illegal weed shops. There are 2,000 of them all over the city, formerly mom and pop shops that went out of business uh, in the lockdown and pandemic of March of 2020. I don't blame anyone for that. We never got hit with anything like that before. But landlords, they're they're being approached by somebody on the corner who owns a bodega there, and they're saying, you know, uh, how about if we set up a smoke shop? They call it a smoke shop. Yeah, I've been approached by those people, but you can't really, then you can't get a license. So how are they getting licenses? No, but you see, they don't need, in the outer boroughs, they don't need a license. What they do is that's the only store that's opened up all 24-7 and the green leaf is in neon and the city had a, a responsibility to close and padlock these shops, which they haven't done, and they keep growing. So imagine, here it is, you have regular businesses struggling, and they see that the person who's making money hand over fist, because it's all cash. There's no debit cards, no credit cards, because remember, it's still a federal crime. They won't let you have a bank account. They watch these guys coming in and out with satchels full of cash, and they're saying, I'm in the wrong business. I'm nickeling and diming it in retail. I got to deal with shoplifters and everything else. So I think we have to take care of retail first, because if we take care of retail, that'll take care of everything else. Because if you look, the majority of the empty space, which is a blight on the city that is either covered up with brown wrapping paper or paper that says this place is for lease or rent, Uh, at this rate, are not going to be utilized because people are not going to want to pay taxes. They're They're not getting services. We have to do things to be really procreative in terms of using retail space. I think if we start with the mom and pop shops and start working our way up, we can start filling up all the empty office space, 50% of which is empty. You know, they're talking about converting it into housing. Good. But there are other practical uses. And the reality is people working at home, we're going to have to accept it. It's a it's a new way. If they can be productive, why are you going to tell somebody in a corporation that you got to force those people to come into the office, especially if the lease rates are so exorbitant that they can actually do the same job in half the space with some of their personnel working at home? But Curtis, the reality is that people do work from home and the biggest a fall that we can have is when the commercial landlords start defaulting yes. and the banks take back these spaces. Absolutely. We need the companies to want to be here. We need the companies to get the people back to work so that we could fill this and pay the taxes. Right now, we can't make our budget. How would you attract companies to come back to the city? Well, number one, the workforce are women. Uh, nightlife is based on women. Unless you happen to be gay, if you're a guy, you're not spending any money unless women are involved in the clubs and restaurants and bars. That's straight up. Everybody knows that. You don't make the subway safe, which are the veins and arteries of the city. I don't know of many women that can can afford to Uber or take a taxi every day around because they are the ones being targeted. Just look at this scene. We see this monster. He has hit this grandmother 50 times and he was released. Now, women can identify them. You know, men, I can take care of myself. Yeah, really? Plus, you got to deal with all 
uh, all the folks in there who are trying to prove that they're men by exposing themselves to women. You know how many women come up and complain to me about that? Guys go, I never see any of that. Hey, idiot, it's not directed at you. Without women feeling safe and taking the subways, you'll never fill up these office spaces. So priority one is the transit system, and that has not been prioritized. So you're back to safety. For you, it's all about safety. If they feel safe, people will come back to work, companies will open. You think that's where it starts? they not only come back to work, they want to stay late, they want to party, they want to spend money. Where are they going to find Broadway in Nassau County or Bergen County? Best city. Off-Broadway. Every, all the other attractions, um, not only Manhattan, but now the outer boroughs have a vibe after hours life. It's all in New York City and it's being tarnished because of the safety, the, the lack of safety. Let's let's dig back into the homeless crisis again. Do you think that they're really the same? I know it's a polit- it's a political issue, but really it's become a, it's a national issue. Do you see a difference between the homeless crisis and the migrant crisis? Oh, absolutely. First off, the homeless crisis was with us long before the migrant crisis. We have homeless people, many of whom are emotionally disturbed. Uh, I've been in and out of the psychiatric facilities. Creedmoor, thirty percent occupied. Why? Thirty percent occupied. We have. So many people who are in need of psychiatric care. That's a state responsibility. Then you look at Kings County in Brooklyn, 35% capacity. Staten Island psychiatric, 50% capacity. So you start adding these statistics up. And during the lockdown and pandemic, Suzanne, what happened was we needed the beds in all the hospitals, both the public and the private. And some of them were for the emotionally disturbed. So we pushed them all out. I don't have any problems with that. We needed the beds. But we never went back out to get those patients and bring them back in. And now they're everywhere. And they're part of the homeless community. They're a danger to themselves, the other homeless and everyone else. And there has to be a concerted effort to go out. They have files. Many of them wear still uh, the tags around their wrists of what Medicaid, medicines they should be taking, what, where they were hospitalized. Bring them back. Get them health care that they desperately need. Now, if I was on a subway and I was projectile vomiting, the whole subway stops. People grumble. But because of this one person, we have to help this man or woman. The ambulance comes, they take it to a hospital. If a guy is banging his head on the side of the the train, nobody comes to him. They say, oh, he's, he's a crazy person. No, no, he's emotionally disturbed. He could have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. We need to care for him. As my father taught me, a merchant seaman 54 years, he would say, Curtis, there for the grace of God go you. Never make fun of these people. Always reach out and help them. Because these people are in need. They're no different than us. They just have some issues. They have mental health problems. We used to call them crazy people. Well, guess what? They're not crazy. They're just mentally sick. And we got to treat them the way we do those that are physically sick. With us today is a special guest, Wendy Fetterman. I could speak volumes of Wendy's success. Just to name a few, Wendy has gotten 13 Tony Awards, two Olivier Awards, and 11 Drama Desk Awards. In 2019, she received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. Wendy has produced over 95 Broadway shows and is a board member 
at the Kennedy Center. 95 Broadway shows. That's a lot. That's a lot of achievements, Wendy. Thank you for coming on the Miller Report. Wendy, you've done it all. Comedies, musicals, drama. You are clearly a towering figure on Broadway. Tell us a little bit about the inside. Like, what goes on behind the scenes? Take us into your world. Well, I love my world. The thing that I love about it the most, of course, is the product, which are the shows. When you walk into the theaters and you're with an audience and you see everybody enjoying themselves, you're watching this great entertainment, the audience is happy, you're employing actors, you're employing a whole lot of other people that are making this show happen. It's just such a wonderful situation. And I just love the live theater and I love the art. Broadway is the heart and soul of New York City. And I'm just honored and thrilled to be a part of it. You created so many onstage productions from icon authors, which I love, like George Orwell, 1984, or Eugene O'Neill, The Iceman, Cometh, Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie, everybody knows that, or Harbor Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. What are the biggest challenges when you're dealing with a Broadway hit like that? Well, when it's a hit, it's quite wonderful. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate to have some wonderful partners to have uh, been invited to be on the producing team of some of these incredible shows. You know, follow the talent. I think that's in any business. You know, follow and work with the people that you admire and respect and that you know or know what they're, what they're doing. And usually after with the talent goes the success. And of course, you've mentioned some incredible, iconic authors. And I was fortunate to be on those teams. And then it's always wonderful to discover and be on the team of somebody that's a brand new name and then watch them become the next big deal. So it's sort of nice to uh, be able to go from either. It's really, it's about the talent. It's about the art. You know, the art has to be there. The art has to come first. And the team has to be right. If you're going to do an iconic, beautiful play by O'Neill, it deserves the respect of the right performers, director, creative team, and, and the entire team around it. And of course, putting it in the right theater at the right time. You know, there were a lot of decisions to be made to make sure that the work of art, whether it's a play or a musical, is given its best possible chance to succeed. But like with the icon authors, it's it's so, the gravity of that is, is humongous because you have to keep their reputation. And how do you handle that? Well, first of all, especially with the authors you mentioned, if the author, you know, we normally have to deal with their estates. Mm -hmm. So especially in theater, writers are the most protected than in any other medium, more than even in television or film. So we don't change a word. Certainly if it's a, you know, when you see the revivals and it's an estate, the only way that anything is changed or maybe made a new version of or modernized is with the approval of if that writer is still alive, those writers, or with the approval of the estate to make sure that their wishes are being honored. And I'm going down to the exclamation point that every Everything is done exactly where everybody feels that it may not be an exact replica of the original production, but it's giving it a new spin, maybe for a new generation. But again, with the permission of the estate of those authors and honoring to make sure that we make it as good as possible. That's just so fascinating. That's just Mm -hmm. unbelievable. The reality is that you're able to keep the creativity while keeping the, I guess, letters to the law, as you're saying, right? So it's, it's, it's... Well, you know, it's a combination of you want to keep the creativity, you want to give honor to uh, a work that has obviously been admired for quite a long time. You don't want to offend the people that loved it. But again, you know, I think it's wonderful when we can show a new generation, you know, why we love this particular form of art or why we loved Shakespeare, for example. And there have been so many interpretations of Shakespeare plays that are done in set in different time frames and time periods because directors have an idea of how to change it. And again, the main thing to do is to make sure to present it in a way that is honoring it and respecting it, but making sure that we're 
doing it so audiences will enjoy it because also, you know, we are, I am part of the commercial theater world. So we have to be sure that we are as best as possible putting together a work of art that will also be appreciated by as many, as large an audience as possible. You know, the, the, the not-for-profit theaters can be a little riskier. But again, when it comes to iconic work, we work with either that those authors or the estate to make sure that everybody is in agreement of, let's try this interpretation, whether it's to the exact way that it was done or taking a spin on, let's try something a little different, but still, you know, bring it to an audience. Thank you for that. Thanks for giving us that explanation. I do understand that you come from a family of entertainment and you've always loved entertainment. Yes. I read a lot about you. <laughs> and, but this wasn't your only thing. Like you, something else, you started in other businesses, which led you to this path. Well, what happened was my mother, my aunt, and my uncle were all perfor entertainers, performers. My mother was Broadway, radio, television. My aunt started on radio, wound up in LA with film and became a big agent. And my uncle Paul was the voice of Boris Badenoff and Jolly Green Giant and Pillsbury Doughboy. He was an actor that became very well known for his voice, Paul Fries. Uncle Paul and Mel Blanc were really the voices of every oh, cartoon yeah. that we know from the day. So by the time I was four or five years old, I was singing harmony and in dance class and all of that because it's what we did. But my father actually had a really interesting family business. We manufactured ribbon for the floral and craft trade. And my dad in the late 50s opened an import division. So we were bringing in everything, again, from artificial Christmas trees and all the ornaments to the flowers flowers, baskets, again, anything for floral and craft. And I really thought it was, it was a really beautiful, you know, there were 14 lit Christmas trees year round. And I really enjoyed the business. And I also found I had a good head for math. So I sort of was on both sides. And when I went to university, I did start with the, I studied theater, but my, I studied theater and business at the same time. That was a promise that I made my father. And it worked out for my benefit that I did both. How fascinating that the left brain met the right brain. Usually math and art don't go together. Well, well think about, but think about it though. If you look, not to compare myself, but if you look back at some, and you know, when I speak with songwriters and petition musicians and artists, there is a lot of math. There's, there's math and music writing. There's math and art, you know, the, uh, the geometry of it. So even though there are two sides, I think there is a possibility to bring to bring both together. I know some other producers similar to myself have are on both sides. They've had creative experience, which I think for me was very fortunate that when I came into the world of producing that I had a background as I can read a script, I can listen and write music, I can understand it. So I'd like to think that that has given me a better chance at knowing what might or what does work and what doesn't work. Do you play an instrument? A piano. Wow. So that's me. Yeah. That's myth. We'll have to have you over to oh, play my piano. Anytime. So given that you are the expert, and I'm sure so many people are listening to this now because everybody wants to have to be famous if they're in the art world, right? When you first, like when you see a show, like how, what is your gut? How do you know if this is going to be a hit? Do you know right away? Or how do you... Well, you know, if you want to call the shows or the, the material, the product, I, they come upon me in many different ways. You know, sometimes I'm just presented a play or I'm in or music or I'm invited to a reading or a workshop of new material. Sometimes I might hear about something that's being done in the theater out of town and out of town could be California or London, but it strikes me or I hear about somebody that's working on something or there's a writer that I know of that I heard is writing something new. So again, there were many different ways to find the material, to find the product. And then sometimes again, it's a phone call, you know, at this point, because I've worked with a lot of people, sometimes it's a phone call going, you know, I'm working on something. I'd really love you to come and see what we're doing. See if you'd like to join us or at least 
please give us your opinion. What do you think? And so that's sort of how it starts. How do you know? I think it's like anything else. You're an expert in real estate. I think that you just, you know, sometimes it's 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 gut. And then, of course, because it's got to be about the art. I guess the same way it has to be about the property. It doesn't matter if the numbers are good, if the building is bad, if the, the art, the work has to be there, of course. And then I have to see where and it, where it is in its development and all the other pieces of the puzzle, how I feel they're going to fit in when I come into the project, at what point, you know, where I have an opportunity to be any form of decision maker or, well, this is what we've got. You know, every every show that I've worked on is different. What is the decision making process? The decision making process can be anywhere from I really love this music in this script. Who would be a good director? Who would be good talent? It could be anything from all of, you know, from sort of the beginning to Denzel wants to do Long Day's Journey. You know, do you want to be on the team? And it hap- and then something like that comes up because a famous actor has or they're in between film or a TV and there's a theater and there's a show and he's got there's a good director. And sometimes that project is, you know, just happens quickly. It's very different than Especially new musicals can take a lot of years, but that, and those are really, the benefits are tremendous when, when they work, but it's a lot of time. It's a lot of going back to the drawing board. It's a lot of getting your creatives in the same room or on the same Zoom together and getting it right. So again, it really depends on what the project is and how long it's been worked on and where I come into it at what point. Speaking of musicals, you've done some incredible ones. New York, New York, Funny Girl, Ain't Too Proud, Tina Turner. Oh my God, I loved her. Did you ever meet her? We I had the opportunity and, you know, it's interesting. I had the pleasure to run into um, at a pre-Tony event yesterday, Adrian Warren, who won the Tony Award for playing Tina on Broadway. And she was, of course, had really had some great time with her and talked about what a mentor she was. But just thinking back, you know, when some of those of us of a certain generation, you know, saw her as a rock, you know, come out as a woman of a certain age, as a rock star and could wear those short skirts and could sing it and could be right there with a Mick Jagger and as a role model and an inspiration. And then looking back to the courage she had to live her life the way that she did. So I think that she's, um, it was really, again, an honor to be um, invited to be on. When the show opened in London, it was an honor to be invited to be on the, the, the Broadway producing team because I'm just such a fan of not only her work, but what she, what she has meant to women and her sharing her story with other people and the courage that she's given to other women to stand up for themselves. Yes, tremendous courage. Today we have with us a icon, a leader, to me a legend, He was the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Bill Clinton. He was the Attorney General of New York State for four years and ready, our beloved governor for 11 years. Welcome, Governor Andrew Cuomo to the Miller Report. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, it really, it's a pleasure know, to be with you. I remember when you were governor, you, during the George Floyd days, you were the advocate for funding the police. You wanted to get more police there. So now we have, how do we incentivize these police officers to join the academy? They, they, we couldn't even fill the academy this year. What would you do as well, governor? Well, look, we have, a, we have a political problem when it comes to crime and homelessness, et cetera. You have a social divide in this nation we've never had before. With the social divide has come a political divide. You have a far right and you have a far left. And those extremes really have been governing our political process. The far right, uh, in many ways, is the tail that wags the dog, or if you want to say far right, the tail that wags the elephant, if that's even physically possible. On the left, you have a very loud minority on the left 
that is governing much of the policy that the Democratic Party makes. So issue on the issue of crime, post-George Floyd, defund the police. A dumber statement has never been made than defund the police. David Dinkins becomes mayor of New York City, first black mayor, historic. We have a crime problem. Do you know what David Dinkins did? He increased the police force 52%. Common sense, guys. 52%. Well, today, we do, ha- we, we, we do have to understand that there are new challenges for our policing and new sensitivity and racial sensitivities. We also need a new model of policing. Not every 911 call requires a police officer with a gun, right? Uh, you, you know you have certain sophisticated problems that are being presented. You have mental health issues. You have substance abuse issues. Design a new public safety system that is more sophisticated for the situations we're facing, but you need public safety. People need to feel safe, and they don't. They don't. So right now, I think every single person in the world is watching what's going on in the Middle East. That is the biggest thing. And the one lesson I think we've all learned is that, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, that one of the reasons this happened is because they were fighting, the parties were fighting within themselves, the political parties, the right, the left, and they weren't paying attention. So have we not learned anything? Have we not, are you, we're talking about the migrants. There's 130,000 people have come into New York City since the spring. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we haven't vetted a lot of these people. Do you think that we have an open border, that we're at risk for some kind of attack here? The migrant problem has exacerbated the, the situation in the cities. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And there was virtually no plan on how to handle them. You knew several million people would come into this country. You have one. Well, I just have to interrupt you. We're all Americans, and I'm for the migrants. I'm a fam- every single American's an immigrant. But it's a question of vetting and making sure that we know who they are. Well, we have now asylum seekers, mm-hmm. right? These are not people who came into the country illegally. They have come in legally, and they are seeking asylum. And we have a legal process to do that that says you can come into the country and you can be here while you seek asylum, and then you have a right to a hearing, et cetera. That's the law. But where do they go in the meantime? And who houses them and who feeds them and how do you educate them and where do they go? And how do you distribute the population across the country so it is manageable? And uh, what cities can benefit from a workforce and what states can benefit from a workforce? So you're not concerned of an attack here because we're so busy in the Middle East? I am not concerned of an attack here because we are uh, so busy on the Middle East. I'm afraid of the dysfunction of the political system. I believe we can solve any problem we need to solve. It's not that we're overwhelmed with problems. It's our inability to craft and enact a solution because of the political divide. We're paralyzed. There is a political—great word. There is a political paralysis. So you take the migrants in New York City, 130,000, which, by the way, is a multiple of what other cities have received. Okay, here they are, New York City. They're on your doorstep. And by the way, Mayor Adams, they're your problem. And Mayor Adams says, 
well, hold on a second. I run a city. Mm -hmm. I'm dealing with homelessness. I'm dealing with crime. I'm dealing with sanitation, et cetera. When did migrants and immigration become a local problem? This is a federal issue. Right. And where is our federal government tell me. in managing it? Where is New York State in saying New York City is still part of New York State last time I checked? Right. And the state saying we're going to come in and we're going to help uh, and we're going to manage the problem. And to put this on a city, be it New York, be it Chicago, be it Los Angeles, be it Miami. No, no. Federal government, this immigration has always been a federal issue. The federal government determines who comes in. Uh, the federal government should take the lead on this issue. The states should be second in managing the issue. But to leave this to the cities on top of everything else they're dealing with that we just talked about post-COVID, crime, safety, et cetera, you just, you, you, you are, um, the mayor, uh, Mayor Adams will say it's killing New York City. I believe he's right because the migrants, the cost of housing, feeding, you're talking years before these people receive the first hearing, the first hearing to determine whether or not they can stay legally. In the meantime, they can't work. So if you were the president, I know you, you had aspirations at one time. How would you fix the border problem? Well, you said I had aspirations. I was. Well, we hoped. Havoc. I could wish. All right. <laughs> Look, the, the, the question of asylum seekers and how we treat asylum seekers, that has been that law hasn't been changed in decades. This is nothing new. You know, people say, oh, well, uh, all of a sudden. No, not all of a sudden. The law on asylum has been well established. You now have people using what, what at one time was a small loophole has become exploded as the rule. And people are now saying, uh, I don't want to wait on the list. I'm coming to seek asylum because I'm a victim of uh, political crime, et cetera. So I'm coming into the country to seek asylum, which is pursuant to the law. But where, how, who, who pays the bill? It can't be years before you have a hearing. The people have to work in the meantime. So they, were they're not sitting in a hotel at $200 a night and the taxpayers are paying the bill. Uh, that issue no doubt has aggravated everything the cities had to deal with to begin with, which was sense of increasing crime, homelessness, out of control, out of control. Uh, frankly, worse on the West Coast. You go to San Francisco, you go to Los Angeles. There Seattle. Were, yes, there are tent cities all over the place. Thank you for tuning into the Miller Report. Please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.